Beloved in the Lord, maybe you have heard of an early heretic in Christian history named Martian. Now, Martian taught an opposition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was the angry God of the Old Testament, whom the loving God of the New Testament superseded. And even though the church rejected his teaching, there remains what we could call a semi-Martianite approach to the Old Testament in many churches. And this approach tends to discount or neglect the teaching of the Old Testament. Even among the Reformed, we can discern this attitude. We can oppose an Old Testament law to New Testament grace, or look exclusively to the New Testament to order our worship and life. Now, at the same time, I need to say here that we can miss how radically Christ changed things. There is a sign where we must grasp the greater intensity of the reality of God that is presented to us in the New Testament. Whereas the glory of God in the Old Testament is veiled with darkness, think of how Mount Sinai is described, yes, fiery, but surrounded with gloom and darkness. Whereas the glory of God in the Old Testament is veiled with darkness, the new covenant gives us light and nearness. However, it is important to understand that the people of God in the Old Covenant had the same substance, they had the same salvation that we have today. And even though the order of the church is simpler, we have Word and two sacraments, whereas Israel had many sacraments, we both, both Israel and us, partook of, partake of Christ and follow Him. The revelation of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament gives us an idea of what Old Covenant saints partook of in the Old Covenant. The time of Israel in the wilderness, in fact, as it's guarded by that angel of the Lord that we read about in Exodus 23, that time is used as one of the primary pictures in the New Covenant to teach us what it is to live in the body of Christ as we travel between the time of our, our uh, baptism to the time where we are brought into, brought into the new heavens and the new earth. And so I bring you the word of the Lord today under the theme, the Lord sends the Lord before you. First, Listen to his voice. Second, follow him to victory. So first, listen to his voice. In our Exodus passage, God has just gone through what is sometimes called the book of the covenant, beginning with the Ten Commandments, and then following that, now speaking only to Moses, with a number of laws that are connected with the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus, the rest of Exodus 20, and then 21, 22, and the first part of 23. And at the end of 23, at the end of this, 
God now turns to the care that He promises His people. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, if we're reading through this for the first time, we would immediately say, that doesn't say the angel of the Lord. That could be any angel. How do we know that that's the angel of the Lord? There are clues in what we read. A little later, this angel is called my angel by God. And, and the people are called to listen to his voice as if he was God. God says, my name is in him. But what tells us that this angel is unique is that a little later, in chapter 33, after Israel has sinned against God through the golden calf, God again says he will send an angel among him but he himself will not be among them. At this, the people mourn. They know that this is not God's special angel. The Moses responds to the Lord by pleading with him that his presence would go up with Israel. This all suggests that this angel in Exodus 23 is, is God's presence. My name is in him. This is the anointed one in his angelic form. Long before he shared in our flesh and blood, he is looking over the very people he will be a descendant of. Think again of the words, or think of the words of Hebrews 1. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This angel that is so closely identified with God and is to be treated as God is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's this reality that actually makes so Paul so confident in how he talks in 1 Corinthians 10. He assumes that what he is about to say is obvious to his listeners. The rock that followed them with was Christ. You were baptized, they, they were baptized, Israel was baptized and ate spiritual food in the wilderness. Sometimes our semi-Martianite instincts can make us avoid the significance of what he is saying. Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. The cloud that followed Israel is, of course, a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. They ate spiritual food. He's probably talking about manna, for Christ himself identifies that as the bread of life in John 6. They drank spiritual drink, and Paul is explicit here. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The people of Israel participated in the pre-incarnate Christ. The suggestion to the Corinthians and us today is how much more we have. Sometimes Christians can look at the mighty deeds God did among Israel and envy the people of Israel. After all, they got to see all these wonderful things. We don't actually get to see that. But ultimately, that's somewhat silly. For the purpose of Christ, to be in Christ, is to be brought closer to God than ever before. We are baptized into Christ. Christ, the Son of God. We're baptized into someone who is both God and man, not Moses. 
We experience a Lord who has taken on our flesh, who knows what we are like, and God has taken this man into His throne room, this man Jesus Christ, so that many sons and daughters may follow. But again, the substance, the salvation itself is the same. It's Christ. The Israelites partook of Christ in the hope of the promise. We participate in Christ as flesh and blood so that we may be formed into men and women moved by the Spirit of God. In the New Covenant, however, there is a greater simplicity and greater power in what is given to the church. There is a greater intensity and nearness to God as the veil is gone for Christ's flesh is now the veil. That's why we can come before God in nearness and light. Sometimes theologians will speak of how there is a new degree of spirituality in the New Covenant. And there's much truth to this, as now all the peoples of God have equal access to the Spirit of God. Gentiles, too, any ethnicity, may have access to the Spirit of God and the baptism of God. But at the same time, there's a new humanness to the new covenant. The new covenant, you might say, is more human than the old covenant. It's no longer declared by angels, says Hebrews 2, but by the man, Jesus Christ. And this makes the warning of the covenant even more intense as well. Pay careful attention to His the angel's voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. We know what happened to Israel. It didn't take long, even after this moment, for Israel to play the whore. As Moses was upon the mountain visiting and learning with God to relay that to the people, the people of Israel set up a golden calf. They were punished. They repented and were restored. But if we keep on reading, they sin again, and they sin again, and they sin again. Until we have the reality that Paul relates in 1 Corinthians 10. Despite all these blessings that the people of God have, already in the old, already in the old covenant, already as in, their will, in the wilderness, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Israel finally refused to go into the land out of fear of the giants, and God condemned everyone over 20 apart from two men to die in the wilderness. Paul warns that we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Let anyone who thinks he stands to take heed lest he falls. The temptation here, as it was so for Israel and continues to be for us today, was idolatry and sexual immorality. I'm going to especially focus on idolatry because that's the focus of our, our text in Exodus 23. And if we remember the catechism on this, its definition of idolatry, Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust in instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. 
we might think we're safe from idolatry because we don't see many idols. But the truth is that we often slip into thinking along the lines of this world, the idol of the self, the idol of technology and science, the idol of democracy and the crowd, the idol of the elites and the wisdom of this world. So if you think you stand, says Paul, check yourself. And it's really good advice in those moments when we approach a place where there are temptations in the movies, in a crowd where you might be, which you might be hanging out with, and the decisions that you make in life, where you think you might be the exception. If you think you stand, check yourself. So listen. Our text here calls us to listen. Listen to God in Christ. And the word listen here has the same sense of, of, of when a mother says that to her child. Hear it and obey. You want both. If you obey without really listening, it becomes something you do without, with your own strength. If you hear it without taking it in and seeking the righteousness of God, your hearing is useless. And remember whom you are listening to, the same Christ who offers himself to you as a mercy seat and a hope for salvation when you do sin. First John says, when we do sin, there is a propitiation propitiation, a mercy seat, which we may come to for mercy and forgiveness. Christ is not there to just boss us around, but He gives us His protection and His guidance if you are willing to seek Him. And that brings us to our second point. Follow Him to victory. Back to Exodus 23 again. If you carefully obey my voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. How do we know that God is for us? If we seek after His righteousness. When Joshua meets the commander of the Lord, another manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, he asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? The commander of the Lord says, no, as if to say, it's not really about that. It's about whose side you are on. It's about whose side you are on that matters. And in some ways, the result is obvious. If we do what the Lord loves, if we love our Lord and do His commandments, then the enemies we have will be the Lord's enemies. We need to understand this within the covenant that God is forming with His people. The people of God were still full of sin. What they were called to do is to use the sacrifices in the tabernacle that God had given them so that they might serve Him. It's the same with us. Christ has given us a sacrifice in Jesus Christ, and our obedience begins by taking hold of that through faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in your heart and are justified, and that immediately expresses itself in the public proclamation of Christ as saving Lord with your mouth. Of course, the obedience discussed here is only possible for the Israelites through faith in the promise, for the sacrificial system cannot take away sin. 
And the promise, of course, speaks of Christ, Christ who will take away sin. That comes in Christ when the angel of the Lord takes on flesh and in the flesh goes before us and conquers sin and death and Satan. Similarly, with our obedience before the Lord, we place our trust in His sacrifice and that faith naturally works itself out in good works. If we do that, if we pursue a faith that works itself out in love, we can be confident that Christ goes before us as He's pictured in Revelation 19, on a white horse with a sword coming out of His mouth to slay. Slay in that part of Revelation means to bring to faith, to pierce with the Word so that men die to themselves and live to God. If Israel lives in faith before Christ, her wars are ultimately won by Christ. That's because, in in a sense, her war is with her own self, with her own heart. It's the same with us. Our war is with our own heart. And now Christ has gone before us and has definitively conquered the principalities and powers of this world. In this sense, physical holy wars are no longer necessary, but the war against the ideologies and darkness that continues to keep people under their power continues. And when we do experience victory, there's another warning in our text. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. The warning here, victory can make us passive so that we forget God. Think of the Corinthians again. They They have celebrated the victory of the cross, which has undermined the authority of all demonic powers. And yet the Corinthians, for various reasons, probably mostly status, continue to flirt with the authority of demons. God granted Christians victory in the Roman Empire, another example, and they turn to idols. That's what the Reformation, that's, that's in some ways you can say what the primary thing the Reformation did was cleanse the church of idols. God granted Christians victory in the West, and they turned to modern idols. The situation Israel will have in the promised land also reflects our situation today. Joshua won the major battles. From that, Israel in faithfulness was to bring all the promised land under the dominion of God. Our Lord Jesus, Jesus is just uh, a Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. Our Lord Joshua also won the main battle, and his church is called to bring all things under his dominion. So in this way, we've had Christian nations, but no nation has been fully Christianized. Those that assume that they are are quickly proven false. I would go further. There's no visible, like Grace Canadian Reformed here, there's no visible church that is fully Christianized. Paul says, I preach that Christ may be formed in you. I preach, 
earlier, he said, as many as who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you put on Christ in your baptism, and then the preaching happens so that Christ may more and more be formed in you. It could also mean among you. That forming is continual as we continue to confront sin both within my own heart and without, within my own church and without. That's why we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We build on the foundation of Christ's work. Coming to the end, Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and water. And the passage goes on to describe all the benefits the people of God will have in their trust of God. And that's the heart of it. Flee from idolatry and cling to Christ. He will never fail you. He was with the people of God in the Old Testament, guarding them on the way, feeding them, and leading them to victory. He is with us in a much closer and more intimate way. All of us may be priests in His temple, entering the holy places, eating the holy food. He guards, He protects, He feeds, and He leads to victory. He will bring you home. Brothers and sisters, He is your Savior, and now is the day of salvation. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.